We are in Matthew 26. This morning we're just continuing our study through Matthew. We are nearing the end of Jesus' life here. Matthew 26. Chipper title for this morning, Jesus and Evil. Uh, We'll look at that. Matthew 26, we're going to start at verse 47, and we're going to read through verse 68. I'm reading out of the ESV. All right, Matthew 26, 47 says this. While he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward saying, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is, that this, what is this these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? That's God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm, uh, I'm just struck that these verses start off, that when you were speaking, Jesus, Judas came and he interrupted you. He had his own agenda. And Jesus, I thank you for your word and I thank you that you are still speaking, that you speak in and through your word. And Jesus, I just pray that we would, 
we would not be like Judas. We would not interrupt you. That our hearts would, would be ready to listen and to hear from the living God through his living word, by the power of his spirit that is in our midst right now. Lord, would we not interrupt you in our hearts or our minds? Would we listen? Together we just humble ourselves before you and your truth. And we say, Lord, have your way. Teach us. You have full authority to teach us what you will. Would you bless us in this time together with your, with your power and your presence? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And these 24 hours are probably the darkest hours in the history of the world. It's no exaggeration to say that. Jesus goes from the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's crushed in agony, he's bleeding, he's sweating blood, he's crying out to his father. Now he's betrayed and arrested and abandoned and led around like a captive to his death. And these verses are, are so helpful to us as Christians because we see our fair share of evil every day in, in our world, in the news, and, and we have our own fair share of evil and suffering in our own lives. And there are times when things just feel out of control. There are just times when you're like, what is happening right now? That, like, this is out of control. And as Christians, we have this gift of the word of God to help us navigate like these times and these questions and help us think clearly about God and about evil and about suffering. And so I, just as we get started, I want to acknowledge for many people, the, like, the problem of evil, this issue of evil and suffering, that's so well displayed in these verses. For some people, this is like the obstacle to believing in God. Like, you know, I, I would love to believe in your God, but like, what about evil? Like, this is the obstacle. And many for even Christians, this is like, maybe we don't have this one dialed. Like we have not figured this out. Like this is a huge obstacle in our own heart, maybe our own worship, our own trust. Like God, how do we think about all of this evil going on? And I just want to, I want to encourage us. If there was ever a case study for the problem of evil, it's the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Because listen, Jesus is the only innocent person. He's the only one who doesn't deserve evil. He is the only truly good man. And this good, innocent man suffers the most injustice and evil from men, and he even suffers the wrath of God. So if there was ever a time to like look at evil, it's the last 24 hours. And if there was ever a time to like ask these questions of God, God, how are you good and in control? And how do we think about evil? We should look at the suffering of Jesus because he was good and he received evil. And so as we unpack these verses together, um, as we look at these 24 very evil hours, um, there's gonna be three essential truths for us that we're gonna look at that speak to this problem of evil. And the first is this. The problem of evil lies with creation, not the creator, okay? This is so important. And again, we're going to look at human evil on display in these verses. It's going to be a little bit brutal for this first point. We're just going to have to take a, a hard, long look at what is going on. Uh, 
Evil lies with the creation, not the creator. Number one, we see it in Judas, right? We know about Judas. Uh, Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. And don't let those words, one of the 12, escape you. Like if there was ever a human who had a chance to not be evil, Judas had at least a one in 12 chance to not be evil. And yet he betrayed Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas gives us some insight into the problem of evil because this is what many people say today. You know what? If we just had the right education system, if we just got like the, the education system right, we wouldn't have as much evil. If we just put people in the right environment, right? You just get them in the right environment. you like, we'll handle the problem of evil. If we had the right coaching, the right mentoring program, if we had like, if, if someone was just raised, you know, in that perfect environment, we wouldn't deal with evil. And Judas shows us, hey, evil goes far deeper than your environment. It goes far deeper than your coaching and your mentoring. This guy spent three years. He was one of the 12 and he was evil. And this is important. Humans do evil because evil is in us. We don't do evil because it's pressed on us, because we lack resources, because we were not educated, because we were raised in a bad neighborhood or our parents didn't have their act together. We sin and are evil because there's sin in us. It comes from inside of us. And so Judas gives us some insight into evil. Next, besides Judas, we see the crowds. Look at verse 47 again. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now we know about these crowds. Many of these people have been healed by Jesus, have been fed by Jesus. Many of these people have uh, had seen and witnessed miracles firsthand. Many of these, John even tells us, had walked with Jesus for a time, believed they were one of his disciples. And yet this night, they with Judas turn against Jesus. And the crowds... This great crowd gives us another insight into evil. It shows us that humans are fickle in the face of evil, right? We've all been there. In one moment, we're for something. We believe in something. We're passionate about something. But then the next moment, if like another position benefits us, we're we're like totally able to switch our values and our allegiance to be over here. Uh, History has borne this out, sadly. You know, uh, like situations like Nazi Germany or even racism in America has shown us that if you or I were in the shoes of, a, let's say, a German citizen in World War II, or if you lived in the South on a plantation 150 years ago, chances are you would probably be complicit with those evils too. Like this crowd shows us we just like are so easily swayed by evil. We're just so easily swayed. Next, we see the disciples. Skip ahead to verse 56. All this, take, all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Man, like Judas, they had spent years with Jesus. But hear, the, hear this. Unlike Judas, they had sincere hearts towards Jesus. Hear that. They had sincere hearts toward Jesus. And even hours before, they all said, Jesus, I'll die with you rather than betray you. And yet when the pressure comes, they all run away and leave Jesus. And the disciples give us an insight into evil because they show us there's a deeper problem than even the human will can fix. 
There's a deeper problem than even your own good heart and your own desire to not be evil. These men were committed to Jesus and they wanted to be good. And yet when evil, this situation came, evil prevailed over them and they fled. And I just want to quickly say, can you relate to that? Right? Like I want to do good. I want to follow Jesus. And when the moment presents itself, how often do we flee Jesus? How often do we you know, flee an opportunity to, to talk about Jesus with a coworker? How often do we give in to temptation, even though we've already promised Jesus, Jesus, I'll never do that again. I won't do that. I love you. I don't want this sin. And when the situation presents itself, there we are with the disciples. And though our will and our heart, even our born again heart that loves Jesus, wants to be good, many times evil still prevails over us. Then we have the, of the last group, the religious elite. You can look again at uh, 57. Verse 57 says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. So we have the high priest, we have the scribes and the elders. Like these men were the cream of the crop, of the cream of the crop. Like remember Israel was God's chosen people out of the whole world. And of the chosen people, there were a few who got to be scribes and elders and leaders. And of them, there was one man who was the high priest. Like right now, we, Jesus is before like the best humans the world has to offer. And these men show us that, man, even evil reigns at the highest levels of religious institutions. And they show us that at every level of society, from the bottom to the top, evil is still there and prevalent. And they show us you can be an expert in the Bible and still be evil. And then the last uh, look of evil I want us to look at is uh, this sword that happens. When, when a disciple cuts off an ear, look at verse 52. Then Jesus, oh, actually 51, behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. First of all, I think it's funny that it was the ear. Like I doubt he was aiming for the ear, right? You don't aim for ears. Like you aim to like kill, but he completely missed, but he like got the ear. I, I don't know. I just think that's funny. But um, who, it doesn't say in this text who it was, but John tells us, and of course, who would it be? Peter, right? Peter's like, I got you, Jesus, takes out the sword. He goes, he strikes, he cuts off the ear. Jesus scolds him, says, put it away. And this is what I think is profound. In these verses, this is the one attempt at resistance to evil, right? Like, good job, Peter. Like, he's at least trying. Like, I'm resisting, I'm not giving in. Yet Peter's act here shows us that even our one feeble attempt to resist evil is often misguided and does more damage than good. Jesus rebukes him. He's like, hey, thank you, but I don't, I don't need this. Put your sword away. Peter shows us that even in our attempts to resist evil, we are tainted in our resistance. Now, evil is clearly here, but to our point, it's important to know that God is not at fault. Evil does not lie with the creator, but with his creation. God is good. God is perfect. Let's just look at one verse together. Psalm 92, 15 says this. The Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is really, really, really important that we get this. In the face of evil, God remains 
upright, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so people bring up, okay, well, if God made everything, if God is the maker, and the thing he makes becomes defective, doesn't the fault lie with the maker? That's like a logical thing to say. Um, However, this is what we know from Genesis. God made everything, what's the word? Good. Good. There was no evil in creation when God made it. We know God is good. We know God made everything good. Yet here's, here's, this is really important. Yet he made his creation in such a way that we were morally capable of rebellion. Angels and humans were created good, yet we were created with this opportunity to rebel against God. And the fault lies with the creation who was created good and not with the creator. Now, I want you to see this in scripture. There's a little like song in Isaiah chapter five. It's seven verses, um, but I want us to look at this together. This is really important. This bears this out. So this is talking about God. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love, my love song concerning his vineyard. His is God. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, God is good. And God's work is good. And yet God's good work, he took out the stones. He made everything right on our own accord have turned and yielded bloodshed and injustice and sin. And so the first truth we see displayed in our story is the problem of evil is not a problem with God. It's a problem with us, his creation. I know it's heavy, but the next point gives us some hope. The next point is this. God is sovereign in the face of evil. God is sovereign in the face of evil. Not only is God good, God is fully in control, fully in control. God has never lost control of one person that he has made. And though we are evil, God remains good and sovereign. And something that often comes up in the discussion of like evil and good is that you, this is, here's, here's a solution, I'll tell you, it is a lie. But here's the solution that often comes up. How can God be, you know, good and powerful in the face of evil? This is what people say. Do you know what? Evil exists because God has no power to stop it. God gave up his sovereignty when he allowed us to rebel. And I want you to hear this. That is a lie and it is not in the Bible. God nowhere gives up his sovereignty. God nowhere says, you know what? I'm going to relent my throne and put people on it and let them rule me. He never loses control. And In case 
you're like struggling with that, and that's understandable. There are four verses in our text that teach us this. And we're going to look at these four verses, seeing God's sovereignty. Number one, look at verse 50. Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Okay, does Jesus seem like worried in this situation? Does he seem surprised? Does he seem like, wait, what is Judas? Really? You're like, that's not what he's saying. In fact, a couple hours ago, he said, truly one of you will betray me. And John 13 says, after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Do you know who's in control in this situation? Jesus is. Do you know who's not surprised at this situation? Jesus. Here's a foundational truth about God. Evil does not take God by surprise. He knows precisely when and where evil will take place. Man, we don't know when evil will come. Like, we don't know when maybe that diagnosis would come or even how many days we have left on this earth. But listen, hear me, God knows. He knows. There's a verse in Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite verses about God's sovereignty and his knowledge. Look at this. Actually, we skipped the first half. I'll read it. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Listen, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day of your life, already written in a book, God knows, God sees. Take comfort. No evil has ever taken God by surprise. That includes your life. God's not fallen off his throne when something like this happens. Okay, second verse is this. Look at verse 53. Jesus says to the crowd, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was between three to 5,000 soldiers. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? Do you think I'm, I can't right now just send like the armies of heaven? You're a little crowd. Like I'm not, I'm not scared of you. He is saying I could send angels right now. And so here's a fundamental truth. God is fully able to stop evil at any moment he pleases. He is fully able. He still has that army waiting. He still has full control. Another way of putting it, and I like this, is God has evil and Satan like on a leash. We see that in the story of Job where, Job's like, or where Satan's like, hey, can I go do this to Job? And God says, you know, you can do this, but you can't do this. Right there, we see God has Satan on a leash. He's like, I'll allow you to do something, but you can't do that. God is fully able to stop evil at any moment. Now, the response to that is, well, then why wouldn't he stop it? And that makes sense. Well, why wouldn't you stop it? And that's natural and that's understandable. But let the Bible, let this story shape your thinking for a second. Do you know who's probably thinking that? When Jesus said, I can send a legion of angels. Do you know who's probably thinking, well, then Jesus, why don't you do it? The disciples are for sure thinking, Jesus, then what are you doing? Send the angels. Like, what are you doing right now? Why would you not send the angels, Jesus? You are, you are the Messiah. And right now you're about to be like captured. Why would you not stop this evil? Well, what, we know what would happen if Jesus didn't go to the cross, right? Like, our sins would not be forgiven. That would not have been a good thing. God knew what he was doing. And so let this story shape your thinking. 
We may not know specifically why at that moment God is not stopping evil, but we need to know that he can. And because he's not, there's something deeper going on that we don't understand. Like we have to let the Bible shape us. When we see evil, don't ever think, oh man, well, God's kind of lost control. He's going to fix it, but he, he's, he doesn't really know what he's doing right now. Or that person is, is stronger than God. God is fully able to send a legion of angels and stop it. And we may not understand, and we probably, for the most part, don't understand in any given situation, God, why will you not stop this evil? But we see here he is able to, and he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And don't forget this verse, Isaiah 55. When you're struggling and you don't have the answer, just remember this about God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we, we may not get the answer, but no, God is seated on his throne and he's sovereign. He could stop it, and since he's not, he's up to something. Third verse we need to notice is in verse 56. Jesus is talking and he says, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So here's a foundational truth about God's sovereignty. God has planned and ordained all that has taken place. Listen, I know this is mind-bending, but Jesus doesn't just know what's going on and Jesus doesn't know what's gonna happen. He doesn't, he's not just in control. He planned what's going on. He planned this night. God planned and ordained and orchestrated the three morally responsible agents to rebel and do this. God planned this. And this is crazy, but look at another verse where we see these two truths put together. In Acts 2 verse 23, Peter's talking to the crowd and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So at the same time in the universe exists God's plan and his knowledge and evil. And God's not at fault. Who crucified and killed Jesus? We did, humans. So the moral weight is on us. That was a morally responsible crowd who willingly said, we are killing Jesus. But who planned it? Who foresaw it? Who ordained it? God did. This is just this crazy thing that we have to be okay with. God is fully sovereign and he even orchestrates all the evil. He's able to take all of this evil and be like, watch what I can do with it. Watch how I'll incorporate it into my plan. I just think it's incredible Whose idea was it, who planned before any of these men were born, that Judas would betray Jesus? In some crazy way, God planned that. He, he prophesied about it thousands of years before. He planned for the disciples to flee. There's prophecies about that. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. Who planned for the religious leaders to falsely accuse and murder Jesus? God did. All throughout his words, it's said in this verse, the prophets have been prophesying this night would come, this evil would come. God planned and orchestrated it. And, you know, here's the temptation. Okay, well, maybe for Jesus, this is special circumstances. God doesn't plan everything else. This is maybe just this story. And I understand that. Let's look at a, the Bible, though. And Ephesians 1.11 says this. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predest predestined, I'm not even gonna get into that, according to the purpose of him, who, listen, 
works, what's the next word? All things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things. All means all. All means everything according to the counsel of his will. And then you may say, okay, so that sounds like maybe the big things, but what about like the little things? What about the little evils? What about me stubbing my toe? Is God really sovereign over that? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the Bible. Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus said this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? If there was anything of little value, it was a sparrow that is sold two sparrows for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He is saying the big things and the little things, none of it happens apart from my sovereign knowledge and control. God is fully sovereign. He is fully in control. He is seated on his throne. He has plans from eternity past that will come to pass. None of us, no human can stay his hand. And he planned the death of his son that our sin, your sin may be forgiven. And he works every small evil of man out for his purposes as well. And you know, maybe the response is like, yeah, but then that just, I don't see how God could be good and just if he's allowing all of this evil to take place. Ezekiel talks about that. And and we're prone to that as humans. We're prone to be like, God, are you really good? Is it okay that you did that? And God through Ezekiel says this, yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And I think right here he's just saying, hey, remember, we are the ones who aren't just. We know ourselves. And, and who are we? Who are we, O oh man, that we would judge the king, the judge of the universe? And so God plans and ordains and orchestrates all evil things. And now the last verse we're going to look at here of God's sovereignty and evil is verse 64. Jesus is talking to the high priest and it says, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man. Who is that? It's Jesus. Seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here's one more foundational truth. Jesus knows exactly how it ends, all of it. Not only did Jesus know what was going on, not only could Jesus have stopped it, not only did Jesus and his father plan this out, he knew how it would end with him seated on his throne. At the right hand of what? I love that it just says power. The right hand of power. Jesus knew God is seated on his throne and his throne is a throne of power. Jesus is powerful and in control, even over the most evil night in history. He knew what would happen, allowed it to happen, and knew how it would end. And so these verses show us, number one, the problem of evil lies with us, not with God. Number two, God is fully sovereign. And now number three, these verses show us this. Jesus has disarmed and will soon destroy all evil. Okay, this is not how, the story doesn't just end with evil. And notice the path of Jesus disarming and destroying evil. How does God show up and make all things right and get rid of all evil? In fact, you know, we can even ask right now, Jesus, why don't you just end evil? Well, if he was to do that, we would all be gone. 
right? Like if Jesus was just, you know what, I'm ending it. There would not be a human left. Jesus is so amazing and creative. How did Jesus defeat and destroy and will ultimately remove evil? By himself suffering evil. He, Jesus, was betrayed with a kiss and all his disciples left him and the crowds that he healed rebelled against him and the leaders were against him and he was mocked and spit on and beaten. And these enemies sought this false testimony against him and Jesus just remains silent. And then he goes to a cross in a few hours after this where he is ultimately killed by evil. And I just think it is unlike any other God who would say, do you know what? I myself will take on evil. I myself will be judged by evil people. Verse 66, they say to one another, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. You guys, the judge of the universe allows himself to be judged by his own wicked creation. The God of the universe allows himself to be judged. We deserve death. He alone does not. Yet Jesus says, I will come and receive evil on my own body and I will be judged by both humanity and by my father in our place. And God is like that, I will destroy evil. Unlike Peter, who's like us, we're like, okay, let's fight it. Let's kill it. Let's destroy it. We end up just doing more evil than good. God is like, watch how I defeat evil. And we're gonna read uh, a couple verses in Colossians and it sums up that Jesus defeated all all forms of evil on the cross. Colossians 2 verse 12 says this, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There goes death. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. There goes sin. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Man, we were once slaves to our sin. We were fully evil. And yet Jesus says, I will become a slave to humans, be led like a slave to the cross. And I will be punished for sinners that we could come to him and all of our sin and the record of our sin would be nailed to Jesus and we would be forgiven. And though all creation is cursed and must die, Jesus himself says, I will die and I will rise from the dead and I will make all things new. And though Satan has been the ruler of this world, Jesus through his death disarmed with, by open shaming Satan on the cross. And Jesus is soon coming to defeat and destroy Satan once and for all. Our God has defeated evil by taking it upon his own flesh, his own body on the cross. And I just wanna close with a couple of really practical, helpful things for us when we are facing our own evil. And it's this, number one, we we mentioned this already. God is fully sovereign and in control over your suffering and evil. He's allowed it, he's overseeing it, and he will use it for your good and his glory. People uh, talked about God's sovereignty as a, as a ballast in a boat. If you know anything about boats, I didn't know this. I looked it up, but it's awesome. Uh, in a boat, there's this thing called a ballast, which is weight at the bottom of a boat. Um, and 
here's two definitions of a ballast. A ballast is a heavy substance, such as rocks or water, placed in such a way as to improve stability and control. And then here's another one. Insufficiently ballasted boats tend to tip or heel excessively in high winds. Too much heel may result in the boat capsizing. Okay, knowing that God is sovereign, that God is like big, is a ballast in your life when suffering comes. Because if if you don't have enough weight there, like you're tipping over, like you're not gonna make it. But when you know that the God of the universe is overseeing your suffering and is able to work it out for your good and is able to fully one day make it all gone, that is a ballast for your soul. Like whatever you face, it's like, man, God is bigger. I'm gonna make it through this storm. And we know from Joseph's life, when he was sold into slavery and all these things happened, at the end of his life, he says, you know what the enemy intended for evil? My God intended it for good. That's true over your life. That's true over every sin that has ever been sinned against you. That is true of every sin you commit. God is saying, man, that's for evil, but I intend it for good. And we know Romans 8, 28, it's cliche for a reason. It is so good. This is so true. We know, and we know, there's no question. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I just briefly want to say, if, if you don't love God, I just want to plead with you. Like that verse isn't true for you. Like your suffering doesn't end for your good. And in fact, your suffering is but a small taste of eternal suffering. And I just want to plead with you, come hear the love of God for you, that your suffering would not be in vain. Number two, practical help on the cross. Jesus has suffered the ultimate suffering for you. Just, just know this. We, we deserve to suffer far worse than we ever will. And Jesus says, I will take that suffering. I will go and suffer the punishment for sin for you. Just remember that. Man, Jesus, thank you that I will not suffer for a single sin. You have suffered. You drank the cup. You suffered every bit of God's wrath for me. And I don't have to suffer that. Number three, God has promised he will be with you in your suffering. And hear this, on the cross, Jesus was abandoned by God. He was abandoned by God so that we in our suffering would never be abandoned by God. Jesus was like, I'll be abandoned so that you would never be abandoned. God is this beautiful promise over us in our suffering in Isaiah 43. says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. I just think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like they were okay. And the flame shall not consume you. Like that is God's promise to each one of us. Over all of your suffering, he is with you. And then number four, the last, uh, last practical help is your suffering is temporary. Praise God. For Jesus rose from the dead. All of your suffering is temporary. And it's, it's real, but it's not forever. And then Paul, who suffered maybe mo- more than anybody else next to Jesus, was able to say this over his suffering in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Our light and momentary troubles. 
He just can refer to being beaten and abandoned, like in prison and shipwrecked like that. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Man, in a million years from now, you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was kind of rough, that was light. But 10 billion years from now, like eternal glory. What, what was our suffering? That is a real hope that we need to look to. That is coming, the day is coming when you will be able to say over your suffering right now. Worst case scenario, man, I have eternal weight of glory that far outweighs this. We're gonna be with Jesus forever and no more pain and no more suffering. And the, actually, the very last thing I was reading this morning, this wasn't even in my notes, but I read this morning in, uh, I think, 2 Timothy chapter 1, this, this verse where Paul's talking to Timothy and he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor about me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And if there was a, a fifth point, I would say, are we willing to suffer for the gospel? Like there's actually honor to suffering for Jesus. Like our suffering provides us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And even more than that, are we willing to place ourselves into suffering for the sake of the gospel? Like um, are we willing to like, I'm gonna go suffer and give my life to the nations for the gospel. Yeah, it'll be suffering for a little while, but, but I, I want to share in Christ's suffering. I want to share in the suffering for the gospel. Like what a noble, what like, you know, a lot of these things are like surviving for suffering. What if we're like, do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to initiate suffering for Jesus. I'm going to walk into it that people would know what Jesus has done for them. Like, do you have a big enough vision to follow Jesus that includes that? I'm going to willingly choose to suffer that people would know the gospel, that my neighbors would know the gospel. I'm gonna willingly be awkward. I'm gonna willingly bring this up at work. I'm gonna willingly suffer what people think of me. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be willingly, I'm gonna go to the nations and I will be willing to die that people would know Jesus. Like, is that in your Christianity? Paul says that's part of suffering. We get to share in Christ's suffering when we do that. Like, when you suffer for, for Jesus, there's like actually joy there. I've, I'll be honest, I've hardly experienced that but I've heard people in prison, people suffering are like, man, what an honor to suffer for Jesus. I want that. I want to be able to like, have that kind of missional suffering in my life. So as we turn to worship right now, I just want to encourage us. Let's look to our God who is big, who is glorious, who is seated on a throne of power. And let's bring our suffering to him Let's remember these promises. I, maybe we need to repent of like, God, I'm sorry I've been thinking that you are too small. That you had nothing to do with this. Help me believe that you are with me and will work this for my good. And let's look to Jesus who suffered for us. We have communion here. Let's, let's worship him with all of our heart for he is worthy even over our suffering. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus, we thank you for the cross where you, God, suffered in our place for us. You took our suffering, where you identified with our suffering. God, I just, I'm just so thankful that we worship a God who is big, who is sovereign, who is not out of control, who's not stressed out, who's not overwhelmed. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us in our suffering. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you are a ballast in the storm. Jesus, even now as we worship you, would you just increase our faith? Would you, in just Holy Spirit, would you just glorify Jesus in our midst? Would we see Jesus to be bigger and mightier and more in control than we've ever thought? We keep our eyes on you, Jesus, in the midst of our own suffering. Jesus, thank you for your love for us that you showed on the cross. You are worthy. Would we worship you now, Jesus?